0: This is Comic Shenanigans, Episode 914, A Conversation with Jim Salagrup. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 914. It's our uh, conversation with the Jim Salakrup episode. Uh, Jim Salakrup uh, is well-known in the comic industry. He was a, a longtime editor at Marvel uh, for, I think, 20 years or so. Uh, he worked on a lot of different books that were really big at the time. Um, he was you know, the guy who kind of tapped Todd McFarlane to be the regular artist on Amazing Spider-Man. He's also been working for uh, Papercuts for the last well, long time, I think, like 15, 16 years or so. Uh, and one of the things we talk a lot about in this episode is bringing the Smurfs uh, to, um, you know, to major audiences again and making sure all the original kind of stuff is and many different variations of the Smurfs have been reprinted um, so it was great fun talking to, to Jim and I hope you enjoy this episode you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com rate the show on iTunes and also subscribe to us on Stitcher thanks again and let's jump right into the episode with Jim enjoy Jim welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast how are you today? I'm Smurftastic it's great to have you on board um, so usually I like to kind of go back and find out your kind of secret origin as a comic book, comic book fan but before I do um, actually what I've been replacing it as my go-to question for people who worked at Marvel specifically in the period that you did is to ask them if they have any specific favorite anecdotes about Mark Gruenwald
1: oh that's a good question uh let me think what I could actually reveal uh <laughs> There was a there was a side of him that uh, I don't think uh, people would like uh, to see made public. But uh, let me see. Well, this isn't really much of a story about him, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway. Uh, it, we're both uh, we were both, well, I still am. Uh, we were Gemini's, and and uh, had a lot in common, but in some ways uh, we were like the opposite. Uh and and one of the clearest manifestations of that, if you were to go into Marx Grunwald's office back then, it was sort of meticulous as far as the exterior
2: mm-hmm.
1: appeared. Whereas but if you went into any of his drawers or what have you, it was chaos. <laughs> <laughs> whereas mine always looked from the exterior very chaotic messy what have you but if you went into the you know the files or anything my drawers my desk it was immaculate and uh you know super organized and even with the mess i'm i'm able to uh, have a good idea where everything is but uh he was a really great guy and uh you know absolutely uh a tremendous fun he was always organizing all sorts of uh, uh, other types of activities you know from uh, volleyball games to parties and uh, trips and all sorts of great stuff so he, he was uh, uh, he, he, he was a <laughs> he loved to build more of a sense of community with the people who worked in the office where uh, we may have all been there every day but we were all so wrapped up in what we had to do uh, it's very easy not to see someone you know even though you work there Mm -hmm. so I I think so I think he enjoyed uh, finding ways to uh, uh, bring everyone together uh, in a uh, non-work activities and what have you he was a, and it came from his heart he, he I think uh, uh, most people uh, we loved comics uh, his love extended beyond that to the uh, to all the people who
0: worked there hmm. I mean this in the nicest way possible but from the anecdotes I've heard, been a privileged to hear over the years it definitely sounds like he was kind of the, the camp counselor
1: yeah very much so you know, uh, he, he he would have been excellent uh, <laughs> doing that kind of thing. But I, I think uh, it is uh, he enjoyed combining it. Uh, uh, it's hard to describe, but it was uh, he he knew just the kind of activities that would be that people would be responsive to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So so no one ever felt. You know, even if they weren't the type who participate in a lot of other stuff, you know, he would come up with, with something that was uh, so silly and fun that uh, uh, no one could resist. It was like they all wanted to get in on it
0: so let's swing the uh sw- swing it back on you then then when when you were younger like w- when did comics kind of first become part of your life i mean it seems with a lot of people in your kind of uh your age bracket it seems like it's usually around like four or five that you know it kind of gets gets hooked into you so i'm curious if that's much the same story with you
1: yeah i think uh <laughs> i'm almost like a vampire and that i have to be invited first but uh uh, and I'll get to that but you know uh, originally I think my parents were like most parents at the time it was very, it was very popular to get the uh, uh, it was like a a mail away sort of subscription program with the beginner books which were the Dr. Seuss uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know beginning reader books Hop on Pop Book Cat in the Hat uh, uh, all that stuff I loved yeah, you know, words and pictures, and I loved uh, my little golden books. Uh, uh, any anything, it was it was just like this is uh, incredible, and uh, I loved all pop culture really. So when I saw Superman on TV, and it said based on the character appearing in Superman in Action magazines, uh, I. I I had to get me some of those (laughs) and uh, and it was interesting because one you know it it, it was almost like uh, you could almost make a huge chart and figure out well this led to this which led to that and uh, I for years like to always think that I would grab anything that was comics uh, because I love all comics but uh, in some cases there were these comics that were I never got to when they were being published. And, uh, and and to explain it was like, you know, once you once you sort of knew Superman, that led you into the, all the other titles. Superman was in, you know, you could read World's Finest, which gave you Batman. And then from there, you could go to Justice League of America, which sharpened up a whole bunch of other characters. And, but, uh, there were these characters like uh, Metamorpho and uh, Doom Patrol, which hardly ever interacted with those characters. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I, so they, I guess they felt like strangers to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and, and I didn't read them until uh, many, many years later. And now I, you know, I love the, the Doom Patrol, uh, you know, TV series. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, you know once I you know there was the uh, the Batman TV show was incredible Uh, it's hard to explain what an experience that was for a young kid because you know the TV shows were all you know this mysterious thing you know they they existed you know who who knew where they came from when you're a little kid and and for the first time in my life there were these ads in the DC Comics saying there was going to be a Batman live-action TV show, and that had to be the very first time I was aware of a TV show and and what it was based on before it actually came out. Mm. So that that in itself was a an interesting experience, and I just you know I wasn't one of those fans who was heartbroken. Not see a, <laughs> a, a a very serious Batman. I loved a silly Batman, and uh, and you know and the comics themselves were silly. And I loved funny comics. And I always like humor, so uh, I absolutely love that stuff. So uh, from there, you know, then you know the Marvel cartoons, Spider Man, Fantastic Four, the Marvel superheroes. You know, how to get on board with Marvel and. And that also just seemed perfect. Uh, again, it's uh, hard to—I uh, think it's hard to imagine the difference between Marvel and DC for modern-day readers because the Marvel and DC are, are fairly interchangeable at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, in the sense that most of their titles are aimed for the, you know, the, the same audience. Whereas there really was a. a a big difference, and that the DC stuff clearly was, you know, for much for a young audience, and so was Marvel, but it had uh, a layer of, uh, you know, humor that was uh, appealing to uh, older fans as well, and uh, uh, just a different approach. The uh, DC stuff was always. Uh, the the characters were friendly and likable, but uh, but the uh, the tone of the editorial policy was uh, very uh, adult in the sense of authority figures, uh, and was very formal. You know, uh, even when they ran a a reprint story in the back of a a comic, they would uh, they would say it was selected by the uh, the editorial round table where you imagine <laughs> these guys in suits coming in to make this important decision upon which uh, story to reprint and whereas uh, you know the whole Marvel bullpen uh, style that Stan would write uh, was just you know instead of like dear editor dear Stan and Jack or dear Stan and Steve etc cetera, etc cetera. and it just had a a friendlier, you know, these are guys you're hanging out with and having fun with and telling jokes and teasing each other. Uh, it was wonderful. So, uh, as a kid growing up in the Bronx, uh, I had, uh, and this was a period in the Bronx that was not, uh, uh, not unlike today too much with, I wasn't, uh, very wonderful and wasn't particularly safe. And, uh, so my dream was, uh, if I could work for Marvel Comics and live in Manhattan, that, that would be a dream come true, quite literally. And uh, so I, I you know, somehow stumbled upon fanzines and this, that, and the other thing. I would read everything I could to find out about uh, comics, uh, you know, thinking maybe I could become a, a comic book artist or what have you. Uh, I got some submissions published and I you know kept uh, you know in fanzines uh, uh, and then there were, I, I did a cover for uh, the comics uh, reader which Paul Levitz was the editor of and uh, and then there was something because I read all this stuff you know just get your work published and I was a uh, I guess a 14 year old kid when there was a magazine out called uh, Kids Magazine <laughs> how's that for specific and uh, and it was their motto was for kids by kids and the uh, publisher and co-editor was Jeanette Kahn. and I had sent in a, uh, some material and I think they were in the midst of moving from uh, St. Louis Missouri to uh, Manhattan and when they came to Manhattan they probably had a uh, a deadline crunch because of the move so someone probably went through their submissions to see who was in New York and I got called in <laughs> to do some stuff and uh, it, it was incredible I, You know, next thing I knew I had a, uh, a cover on a national newsstand magazine I wrote with little articles inside drawings and pictures uh, the story I like to tell there was this other also 14 years old at the time at the magazine Uh, his his name was Tom Gamble and uh, I was uh, candidly I was a little jealous of him I thought oh his cartoons look a little better than mine his writing a little funnier than mine you know but when it came to having a big career in comics ha 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 I'm the one that uh, you know is still working away in comics and poor Tom Gamble had to settle for becoming the producer on Seinfeld and then the Simpsons <laughs> yeah, we, we, we got together not that long ago uh, Tom uh, Jenna cotton and, uh, and me for a little kids magazine reunion lunch and uh, we were recalling one of the articles we did for uh, kids magazine was uh, uh, an interview with the uh, the editors at uh, Mad Magazine and in reality what it was is Jeanette, uh, Tom and I went up to Mad Magazine's offices and we got to interview uh, Al Feldstein and uh, Bill Gaines and uh, during the lunch I was trying to recall what it was like and I was saying I guess the questions I was asking were a little, you know, too sophisticated or too inside you know like you know fan type questions and tom corrected me (laughs) my memory i guess had softened things over the years and what i had done i was asking you know naively al feldstein all these questions about uh harvey kurtzman and and he he sort of got really upset and demanded you know turn that tape recorder off and, uh, <laughs> and and once the tape recorder was off he said how the hell do you know who harvey kurtzman is and and uh, you know so the whole interview that we were trying to do was scrapped but the editor the adult editors of uh, kids magazine wound up sending questions to uh Mad Magazine, and you know, like uh, they they provided the uh, suitably sappy or snappy uh, <laughs> <laughs> answers, and uh, uh, so this magazine that was supposedly for kids by kids, you know, had this article in it that was all by adults. You know, like I, this is a, a, an expose now. But anyhow, <laughs> but you know, uh, it was one of these things where through reading uh, fanzines and interviews with all these comic book artists and hearing how so many of them would start out as assistants and you know they'd clean the pen points and fill in black areas and erase, erase the pencil lines I figured I could do that and uh, and I figured what the heck and, and I also read uh, a lot of these uh, folks were able you know they, they attended the uh, Uh, the high school of art and design so uh, I applied to that I got accepted to that but the summer before I was gonna you know work well attend art and design I figured what the heck you know I sent everywhere I, I sent stuff to fanzines I got published I sent material to kids magazine I got published why didn't I you know send something to Marvel so I sent a postcard. I drew, you know, one of my lousy drawings of the Hulk on it, sort of <laughs> my version of a Herb Trimpy Hulk in full color to try to get attention. And this was in 1972. Uh, Tom and I got kicked out of uh, kid's magazine, not because of uh, my uh, daring interview style, but <laughs> the, the, it was like Menudo where, you know, once you hit 15... You were out. You know, get out of here. This, you, you weren't a kid anymore, so that free ride was over. But uh, so I thought, okay, well, I got to go to high school now, and uh, I had nothing to lose, and I just sent this uh, postcard in, where it had the picture and, and the copy on the text I wrote. Uh, I'll be your slave, you
2: know.
1: <laughs> so uh, obviously, I knew what. Marvel's, uh, I didn't know, but I, I, I stumbled on to uh, you know, what Marvel's you know, budgetary thinking was like and, uh, and it turned out the timing was perfect uh, Marvel was expanding rapidly at that time, they had been uh, you know, bought by a company called Cadence Industries uh, Stan Lee was now the publisher, Roy Thomas was the editor-in-chief and they were cranking up and producing so many titles that in the old days, like a year or two before, you know, they, they were doing basically a dozen or so titles. And they could just mail them to the Comics Code who would then mail it on to the printer in Sparta, Illinois. But now they were falling behind on everything. And in order to save some time, they were hiring messengers you know who would take the uh, the actual original artwork? You know, when the comic was completed, bring it to the Comics Code. That would be done same day rather rather than a few days in the mail. The Comics Code offices were also in New York City, so it wasn't that big a deal. So, just imagine something like this happening now. Well, first of all, no one sees any original artwork; it's all digital. Only the artists have the original artwork, but. Can you imagine? You know, like here, fifteen-year-old kid who we we have no idea where you, you know where you come from. Take this original artwork to the comic show authority for us. Yeah, and I did, <laughs> and uh, it, it was great. I loved it. I, I, I got the job, and uh, uh, it was thanks to I had sent the. Uh, the postcard, I guess, to Roy Thomas, and uh, at that time it arrived, Saul Brodsky was uh, one of the production managers at Marvel along with John Reporton, and uh, he, he was like looking at all the bills and saw how much they were paying for messengers and figured to save money and time, you know, it makes sense to hire a messenger. And uh, Roy Thomas had an enlightened policy because they were so understaffed at that point that if they could get someone who knows anything about comics, they could lend a hand. And uh, as opposed to the stereotypical messenger back then, he'd just sit in the uh, reception area with a cigar waiting for the next package to deliver, and that <laughs> that's all they could get out of him. With me, you know... Back in those early seventies comics, there was all you know. Like, not only did they have those little page numbers that had to be scotch taped to the bottom of the original art, you know, there would be the continued after next page. Oh yeah. You know, com- comics don't have those anymore. Yeah, you know, I don't know how people know. Well, where the how where the story <laughs> continue, and but uniquely in the 70th Marvel I guess they had so many titles they couldn't plug them all the bullpen page they would have even these little running you know advertisements on the bottoms of the pages that I would you know have to cut out and paste on and you know did all sorts of crazy things when I started and but I was like uh, I couldn't believe it I mean the first day I showed up you know I was like this mere mortal for Merc. Who had arrived in Asgard and I was surrounded by my comic book gods, you know, there in the office back then was Roy and Stan Lee, John Romita, Marie Chevron, uh George Rousseau it was just incredible and uh, and I was like a, a pit bull and once I got my uh, my teeth into Marvel's leg I wasn't letting go and it was great, so that's, that's a long version of of how I got
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back just for a second. Just, uh, I obviously want to talk a lot about Marvel, but um, when you talk about, you know, you kind of voraciously, uh, you know, devouring old comics you can kind of get your hands on when you were younger. I'm curious. Just, obviously, it obviously has a connection later on in your life. But when did you first experience uh, the Smurf comics? Uh,
1: it wasn't really till uh, I was at Marvel, and even then. Uh, you know I wasn't by then I was too old and you know all oh, this Smurf stuff this is this is this you know kiddie stuff and uh, and my uh, my uh, it was you know it was a the companies back then uh, Marvel and it was a, a company that also published some of the actual graphic novels but Marvel wound up doing uh, some original Comics that they published as mini comics, like some three issues of a regular series and, uh, and, and like a, a treasury sized one. And my my uh, late friend, uh, good buddy David Anthony Kraft, uh, wrote those. I think uh, Stan Goldberg drew them. And uh, I've been trying to reprint them, <laughs> and I may just uh, still get to do it. Uh, but the but the folks at uh, the Smurfs, uh, uh, you know, they're they they you know they like to uh, keep up the uh, you know the tradition of the you know keeping the Smurfs in the Peo style, hmm. and uh, and you know the, you know the the Marvel ones weren't that bad, but they were just uh, done in a different style, and so I think now that we've uh, the Smurf books we're doing at uh, Paper Cuts uh, have all expanded to you know far more pages I could probably uh, rationalize it and say hey here's a little you know bizarre thing you know uh, know, here's a you know it'll have the the majority of the book will be filled with on Smurfs but we could have like a a little section in the back you know like Here's, here's how Marvel did the Smurfs back in the 80s, so I hope I could do that. But, yeah, I didn't see – I really didn't see Peo's Smurfs until uh, I was here at Cuts, really. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there was uh, someone we list as our Smurf consultant, uh, uh, Smurfologist uh, Matt Murray – was uh, filling filling me in on the the history of the Smurfs and what have you, and uh, because when when we you know I, I wanted to publish them, and you know I chased after it for I think about five years before we got the rights. So other publishers were going after it as well, and uh, and what happened is when we finally got the rights. A lot of times, you know, there's no guarantee anything you're ever going to publish is going to succeed or not. You're always taking a chance. So, for the first two volumes we did, I had to figure out what did I want to publish. You know, you know, uh, and and one of the the first one we did, uh, there, you know, Matt had told me that. There was something called the Black Smurf and uh, I was what 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 is it and uh, in Europe you know kids who go to school they're a little better versed in European history so they're very aware of uh, the Black Plague Mm. so that story is very much you know about uh, this fly who uh perfect pandemic uh, conversation here <laughs> who uh you know bites a smurf and the smurfs are blue it turns them black and suddenly they're sort of like zombie eyes smurfs where they're they go around you know hopping up and down biting other smurfs who then all go around saying nap 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 as they keep biting others blue smurfs turning them into black zombie smurfs and uh You know, that particular story had never been translated into English or never been here in America in print form. Uh, On the animated TV series, they ran the story, but instead of the black Smurf, they made it the purple Smurf. Mm. And the thinking was they didn't want it, because it had nothing to do with uh, black people. It was... uh, yeah, it was just a takeoff on the uh, Black Plague, so making it purple, yeah, you know, was a, a brilliant solution. So I proposed that to the uh, the Smurf people, and, uh, and they were a little reluctant because, unlike a lot of corporations that own, you know, intellectual properties, comics material, and what have you. The Smurfs is still owned by Peo's family. Uh, you know, at the time, his his, uh, his widow was still alive, and his children run the company. You know, his widow since passed away, but uh, his uh, daughter runs the company now. His son writes a lot of the new material. So, this isn't just some job they have. This is this is like their family's legacy, their father's legacy. This material they take it very seriously and the idea that I was proposing was, uh, oh, let us change this from uh, black Smurfs to purple Smurfs, and uh, they were a little reluctant to tamper with his artwork, but uh, I'd gotten an artist, a South American fellow, and uh, he was uh, thrilled to get the assignment. He said he uh, he was in, um, I think from Brazil, and he remembered being on his mother's lap, uh, being, being read that very uh, story, you know, the, the black Smurfs. And to have this opportunity to work on it uh, as an artist was, uh, you know, he couldn't believe it. So he, he treated it with great respect. He, you know, basically was just inking over the black Smurfs and, you know, making it outlined so it could be, they could be colored uh, purple. And, uh, they, they approved it and we got to do it. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, uh, the Smurfs books did quite well for us and they continue to do well. Uh, well, you know, before we started, there was uh, a movie coming out. There's been a few since. And, mm-hmm. uh, and now the Smurfs are on Nickelodeon where, uh, you know, a whole new generation can become, uh, familiar with these, uh. With these characters, but we love keeping the uh, the, the books in print, and uh, uh, we've even uh, published quite a few other uh, Peo characters, like uh, uh, Benny Breakiron, which I absolutely love. Uh, that was, uh, you know, sort of a his little, you know, Peo's version of a superhero type character. Uh, it was a little French boy who has these powers, but uh, if he gets a cold, he loses them. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and like, once again, like there's a lesson uh, for me as a, in the comics is every time you think you have an original idea is, like, back when we were uh, doing Spider-Man with uh, Todd McFarlane, there was one month where... Uh, I think it was some kind of anniversary of Superman and we figured, oh, wow, let's do an homage cover to Superman. Like, it's been done a gazillion times since, but I think we may have been the first ones to do to do that. And we had, a, you know, Spider-Man lifting a, uh, a police car where, if you look at the numbers on it, it was the uh, you know, the year the mm. first issue of Superman came out and... Uh, <laughs> I think McFarland signed it after, uh, you know, Joe Schuster. And uh, uh, and, and we thought, oh, uh, look look how clever we are. And then when I, when I get, uh, we look at the first volume of uh, Benny Brake Iron, which was published in the early 60s in France, the first cover is little Benny Brake Iron holding this big car over his head. <laughs> So Peo had beat us to it by uh, by, by decades, and uh, uh, it, it was just wonderfully done. And then other volumes, yeah, you know, like they would they would parody other types of pop culture things that were big in the '60s, including sort of a you know James Bond was big then, so as a spy parody. Just some beautiful, beautiful work there. Uh, also, of course, the series Johann and. Pee-weed, which is the series where the Smurfs first appeared. So we've been publishing a lot of those as well. Uh, there was one volume where we collected before even Johan and Pee and before the Smurfs, Peo had had a comic strip called uh, Pussycat. So we, we did a collection of all the Pussycat comic strips. And uh, and we're, I think we pretty much now have long since published all the payo smurfs material now we've yet to publish all the there's still some payo stuff on the other characters we haven't published yet but we'll get to it but we're still still going strong and and it's it's a lot of fun
0: so uh, this is kind of a, maybe a deep dive question but um with the soft cover of the Ulta the smurfs um when are we going to get volume 27 because i believe like i don't believe that's come out yet like 27 and oh, 28 were supposed to come 20, out. I don't oh, think yeah. they.
1: What? What? It's we. Uh, there won't be a twenty seven. Uh, what would have been twenty seven is the lead story and the Smurfs tales number one. Okay. So it's it's a it's now three si- three times as big. So you'll be getting you know in, in the Smurfs tales you'll be getting the equivalent of uh, three of uh, the old graphic novels in one but uh, we're picking up from where we left off so you get number, you get the, the next volume of Smurfs I think we're including Smurfs comic strips in that one and the Johan and Pee uh, adventure in that one uh, and then we mix it up I think in the second volume it's Smurfs and uh, Benny Breakiron and the third one there were uh, these uh, one shots we'd done you know two of them, where it, they were stories based on the female Smurfs that appeared in the,
2: oh, yeah.
1: the, the last Smurfs movie. So we published two as separate standalone volumes, and they were done in a, a much more uh, illustrative style, you know, more you know, full color as opposed to just flat color and black line work. Uh, so there's a third one we're including, so we're, we're publishing all three uh, stories with the uh, well, collections with the uh, the Smurfs of uh, <laughs> Smurfy Grove, I believe, and uh, because I, I think it'll, it would look weird to have uh, you know the other styles in that book, but yeah, so it pretty much continues, and you know we we, uh, we love the uh, the format we were doing it in. We, we thought it was a, a great price point. It was doing well. But the trend with kids' graphic novels in recent years is thicker books. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we, we don't like to give uh, booksellers reasons not to carry our books. Oh, your books are too thin, you know. Uh, so we figured, well, there's certainly enough Smurfs material that we could do. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a thicker book and since there was a new cartoon show coming out it made sense to sort of relaunch so it's it's, uh, The Smurfs Tales number one Uh, you know for people who are picking up the old series uh, you know that uh, continues on in this series Uh, we had also been Repackaging the old series and, you know, in a series called uh, The Smurfs Three in One,
2: mm-hmm. three of
1: the old graphic novels in one. Uh, but surprisingly, you know, while that's doing well, there's still demand for the single volumes. So we still go back to press on those. <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of the same stories are. Uh, Available in, 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 in different formats. Uh, one of the books we did a while back was called Smurfs Anthology, which was... Uh, because we, had, you know, didn't religiously follow the original release schedule mm-hmm. of uh, the European books. So in Smurfs Anthology, we decided to try to do that. And, that, and it also gave us another chance to uh, uh, go over each story and fix some of the uh, mistakes we made originally so uh, so now whenever we're running uh, some of the older material we're going we're using the the files we created for Smurfs anthology. you know sometimes it's a little frustrating we'll fix something and then uh, we'll go back to press and then somehow we're back to the old uncorrected files <laughs> <laughs> So it's, you know, it's, we're all human and uh, mistakes happen. But uh, I, I think we're working very hard to make sure uh, going forward we keep using the, uh, uh, the corrected versions. You know, over the years we figured out more stuff and, uh, uh, you know, the, we were very proud of the anthology series. That was these big hard covers where they were, where we were finally printing the the material the, the same size it was originally published at mm. uh, I find you know I never thought I'd be saying this I'm a huge print guy I love you know print comics graphic novels etc but a lot of times uh, looking because I work on these things on my computer so I'm looking at them digitally and it's really great to be able to blow stuff up and you know the smurfs uh looks great at any size but but something like asterix mm. is the artwork's incredible and to see it uh, as big as possible it, it's beautiful beautiful artwork
0: well i i have to first of all i guess thank you for telling me about what happened to again the original numbered volumes because i was picking all of those up um, my wife was a big fan of Spurfs. I definitely you know became a, a big fan as, of it as well so we have the entire all those volumes and I remember I had pre-ordered an Amazon you know the the other volumes that were numbered and then like, obviously they never came out and I was like what's happening with these so I'm glad that you've kind of answered that mystery for me
1: yeah it was uh, we would have liked to have continued but uh, I, I, I think uh, the timing was good with the uh, new uh, animated show coming out uh, to launch something new in, in, in a sense sort of start over again it, it's like uh, with uh, kids material uh, especially you know there's new kids all the time hmm. so uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's fun to uh, uh, you know sort of repackage and find uh, you know new ways to uh, present the material uh, and and uh, we love it. I, I like seeing the stuff over and over again. There, you know, there's certain stories that I think were uh, really exceptional. You know, usually co written by uh, uh, uh Ivan Delaporte, I'm not sure of his name, but uh, I think he was the editor that Peo worked with, and uh. He did, like, the the Smurf King and a few others uh, uh, that are, you know, have a bit of political satire, and uh, they're, 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 I, I say the ones he was involved in writing are my favorites, but they're all fun in one way or another.
0: Mm-hmm. So... I, I mean, I, I've, I have so many questions, and I feel like we're going to run out of time relatively soon. So um, I guess I, I just am curious about the – obviously, you were at Marvel a long time. You worked there for, like, at least 20 years, if not more. Um,
1: precisely 20 Was it 20 precisely
0: years, 20? So. Okay.
1: 72 to 92. Wow.
0: Um, so, you know, what, what was your perception of kind of the evolution of editorial from your – you know 1972 to 92 what was your take on how editorial had kind of modified itself and changed over the years while you were working there and how did you feel that you maybe contributed to some of that evolution and at other times we're just kind of watching it change around you
1: mostly i you know because i was participating in it i, I it was hard to pull myself outside and get a you know that perspective mostly an insider's perspective and uh and I tended to always sort of uh, build a little you know uh, not a wall but uh, you know I I always had like my own little world within this bigger world Mm. Uh, you know like what was that Stanley title? Worlds Within Worlds whereas uh, like when we were talking about Mark Grunewald he was someone who very much interested in the whole Marvel universe and uh, you know had ideas for every single character Uh, I was uh, my interest were you could hand me any titles and it's still true to this day and I'll give 100% to it you know and I'll try to make that the absolute best it could be Uh, You know I'm I'm sort of competitive And I enjoy that kind of challenge Uh, So at Marvel uh, The way it affected me You know Only in the very beginning uh, When Archie Goodwin Was the editor-in-chief And it really wasn't Broken up into uh, Editorial groups yet That happened with uh, When Jim Shooter became editor-in-chief Mm-hmm and, and once that happened uh, well you know I, I, I guess the word I was looking for before, before is almost like I became isolated you know like even when I was assistant editor originally to Roger Stern and we were working on all the Avengers titles the X-Men the Fantastic Four titles a bunch of reprints and uh, Marvel Premiere Marvel Spotlight uh you know, a ton of stuff. Uh, you know, in in many ways, what Roger and I were editing just then was like the equivalent of uh, what Stan had in the early sixties. You know, we we had about just as many titles, so <laughs> it felt like we were our own little company. I mean, we would uh, uh, we had so many characters, but. I think it was rare that we had to uh, check with anyone else. I mean, I guess if Spider-Man guest starred in something. uh, But even then, we were uh, editing uh, uh, Spidey Super Stories, which I was a longtime writer for, uh, and and editing Marvel Tales, uh, you know, with the Spider-Man reprints. But uh, we, we were doing so much stuff that... You know, the only thing that would really impact us from the outside was who the editor in chief might be. So, uh, you know, and and you know, and everyone had their own approach and their style. And I'm very old school in that if uh, if someone hires me and they're the boss, I sort of uh, see it as my challenge to, you know, not only do stuff that I'm proud of and pleases me and I hope the readers, but you know, just uh, practically, I want to make uh, the boss happy. I want him to, you know, approve of what we're doing. So uh, so that, that would uh, be the main thing. And uh, so at Marvel, for the most part, it was like, uh, you know, working for Jim Shooter, then uh, Tom DeFalco. Uh, and I really didn't have too many problems with either one of them. And then after that, uh, you know, becoming editor in chief, it was like, uh, well, now I'm working for me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, at, at Tops, and there was a brief uh, couple of years working for Stanley again at uh, Stanley Media, his online uh, company, and then since uh, it's almost uh, 20 years, I, I've now been at cut so. Uh, uh, the difference here is instead of an editor in chief to answer to or something uh, on the license books, we uh, got to make sure everything is approved by the owners of the license. On the creator-owned stuff, you know, we got to make sure the you know the creators are happy. And uh, but it, I still feel like I'm, you know, the, the basic components of what I'm doing really haven't changed. I'm, I'm still editing. I, I, I always had assistants, great assistants that I worked with, who gone on to do you know many of the Marvel ones have gone on to do great things. Even some of the my paper cuts assistants have moved on to bigger and better stuff in the industry. Uh, my first uh, assistant at Paper Cuts, Michael Petranek, is a you know big editor at uh, editor at Scholastic now, doing wonderful stuff. I think even working on the. Uh, the Marvel graphic novel so uh, so that's fun to see so uh, from my point of view uh, you know I sort of always isolated myself and you know had my own little world and how I did comics pretty much my entire career so you know I I'm not the guy to really ask how it affected you know the company as a whole you know, I, I, I just sort of uh, would would adjust, you know, to whoever, you know, the new boss is, and uh, and then just keep going.
0: Who would you say, like, I mean, especially coming up through editorial? Who would you say maybe had the most impact on you in terms of influencing your own style as an editor when you did become a full editor? And as you say, kind of, you know, learn to self isolate and you know create. You know Comics your way And kind of With the books That you were overseeing Who do you think Had the most influence On your burgeoning style At the time
1: Uh Well The, the biggest influence Is Is Stan Lee And uh And that That served me well For many years Uh, uh Jim Shooter Uh It's interesting I, I I even saw him This weekend At A, a Big Apple Comic Con I hung out with him And uh at Marvel Stan Still even when I was working for Jim Stan Still had the bigger influence but I learned a lot from Jim and he influenced me a lot and a lot of what I learned from Jim has been uh, incredibly valuable at Paper Cuts Uh, particularly because uh, you know the whole time I was at Marvel it was still uh, approved by the Comics Code Authority so you know, they were technically all ages comics, so it's not that different a thing for me to be at Paper Cuts and uh, be working on uh, material primarily, uh, you know, aimed at you know that has to be suitable for kids. So, uh, you know, the uh, what I learned from Jim was more about uh, you know clarity and storytelling and. Uh, you know, making it uh, as accessible as possible, which is important when uh, your reader is new to comics or even uh, when Paper Cuts was uh, first starting, uh, you know, a lot, we we were very conscious of trying to get our books into libraries and uh, school libraries, places like that, where I think it was important that if uh, someone unfamiliar with how to read comics, per se, it sounds crazy. (laughs) Uh, But if you look at, you know, an early Image comic or uh, some of the more, you know, say, uh, New Mutants by Chris Claremont and, uh, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz, they're a bit trickier to read than, say, the Smurfs. (laughs) <laughs> the Smurfs are almost an example of uh, something like the comic strip uh, Nancy, where it's impossible not to be able to read them. You know, there's uh, there's super clarity. You know, like uh, the word balloons are always above the, the right character's head, and the characters always speak, you know, like they're lined up, you know, left to right. You know, so there's no... Uh, guessing you know who's talking or where the balloons coming from and which panel to read next it's all very uh, uh, easy to read as those uh, <laughs> dr. Seuss books were when I was a I was a kid so it's it's come full circle even when I was at uh, Marvel Comics I thought it was crazy that when I was working on Spidey super stories, that we're doing a a Spider-Man comic to help kids how to read. That's like, you know, it was like, I read (laughs) Spider-Man. I learned to read from that. I didn't need, you know, some, you know, baby comic, you know, but uh, I I learned to understand it and appreciate it more uh, later on. And uh, uh, and, and it made sense, you know. It's like, uh, I do remember when I first started reading spider-man it was in the middle of a storyline so i found it so compelling and captivated that that didn't throw me off but some people you know are easily confused i guess and uh, <laughs> so it's helpful like with the majority i would say over 95 percent of all the paper cuts books are you know self-contained stories and uh it's rare that we, you know, have a, a cliffhanger or a continued story or anything like that. Whereas that was the nature of all the the Marvel stuff, far more soap, opera, soap opera-like. So, uh, yeah, so I, I would say uh, creatively and, and, and in terms of the spirit and heart of the stories, uh, uh, Stan would be my, you know, and, but, you know, all the Marvel people you know from the 60s so that would include Jack Kirby, Steve Deco, Tom on you know Dick Ayers etc mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then you know sort of a more technical aspect and uh, uh, you know I would say Jim Shooter has been a great influence and, and very helpful you know uh, you know tremendously uh, insightful in terms of how how to make things work and uh, and specifically in the area of uh, uh, clarity.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you one, I guess, kind of question before I, I let you go for the evening, even though, again, I feel like I could have you back on for multiple more hours. If you, if you want
1: to have more time, I, 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 we could go longer if you want. It's up
0: to you. Uh, unfortunately, I have more of a constraint this time. Otherwise, I would absolutely oh, no take problem. you up on that. Okay. But, okay. but uh
1: do it again another time.
0: For sure. So I guess one other question I have is, you know, working at Marvel for as long as you did, which is there a specific creative team that you're most proud of kind of putting together? Because if you look at some of the things that you worked on, they kind of changed comics or like really made a huge impact in different careers and setting up things to go in a certain way. Is there a particular pairing or a particular, particular creative team on a, one of the books that you edited that you're most proud of kind of putting together?
1: Oh, you'll hate my answer. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I, I mean I'll, I'll explain it by saying uh, uh, you know um, I remember when I had my uh, office at uh, when I was editing Spider Man, I would go to flea markets and pick up any little Spider Man toys or <laughs> junk I could find, and so my my office was like a little Spider Man museum. And one day, someone was like standing outside my office, and they said to me, very you know, sympathetically, "Oh, you know, if you're, I guess you'll be really upset if you when you stop editing Spider-Man, you know, assuming that I must have, you know, had this, you know, overwhelming love for for the character, and uh, which I did, but the truth is, I have that." for everything I edit you know it doesn't matter what it is and uh, and uh, the teams were great uh, you know it, it was um, it was interesting I, I sort of fell into a lot of the teams uh, the, it almost breaks down to the two areas I was editing and it was like when I was uh, took over on, on Roger Stern's titles I, I inherited a bunch of people but you know in some you know, I added on as well, and uh, then the other time was I, I I took over after Jim Housley on the Spider-Man titles, and uh, that was almost starting with a a clean slate. But I I you know I had uh, actually heard you know gossip or, whatever, or what have you. That you know, some people were upset that or jealous or whatever you want to call it. That the last time I was editing a bunch of titles, that, oh, Jim was hogging all the all the best creators and writers and artists, which I, you know, I thought you know, uh, I that was crazy. So when I took over on the Spider Man stuff, it was almost like I felt I'll work, you know, I'll work with anyone, you know, uh, I felt like, uh like the dirty dozen you know like give me absolutely anyone I'll be thrilled to work with them and I think we'll we'll rise to the challenge and we'll come up with some great stuff uh, and ultimately one of the guys uh, uh, Todd McFarlane was a result of uh, you know Mark Grunewald uh, brought Todd in one day and he was and Mark was bringing him to all the different editors and I think that day he picked up assignments to do uh, I think uh, he did some G.I. Joe and some he did did The Hulk for a while and uh, you know he was someone who when he started you know no one could say you know this guy was a superstar (laughs) but uh, you know we had so much fun working together and, but I had just as much fun working with Alex Saviak and uh, Sal Buscema and Mark Bagley and, and, and you know you know we, we brought in even you know whatever we could John Romita Gil Kane Ross Andrew you know we, we were just having uh, we even had Steve Ditko do uh, some uh, uh, stories for one of the annuals where you know Spider-Man didn't appear in them but we were able to put the uh, you know, uh, you know, Ant Man. Uh, he did a, an Ant Man story for us. He did a, uh, well, what was that character Ditko had? Uh, uh, Captain Universe. Uh, we did a Captain Universe story. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I loved all the teams we put together. I loved all the creators we worked with. Uh, it, it was just such great fun.
0: Okay, well, that's a good answer then. <laughs>
1: that's well, the truth <laughs> I really was super super lucky it's like I look back on it and uh, uh, you know like all the people I loved as a uh, comics fan uh, uh, I, I was lucky to work with uh, at one time or another with almost all of them you know not quite all but uh, uh, a vast majority and it was uh, always like uh it was, it was very dreamlike, you know. Oh, I can't believe it! Jim Steranko just did a cover for Blade Runner for me. Oh, I'm working <laughs> with Archie Goodwin. Oh, you know, John Buscema just called me at home. I can't believe it. You know, it's, it, it was almost surreal. So uh, I, I absolutely uh, loved it all
0: excellent well again jim thank you so much for spending your time with us today and again i would love to have you back because obviously there's so much to get into we've only really breached the surface of it but i really appreciate you taking the time to talk about again i think we've talked about a lot of good philosophical things here too about you know the process of editing what it's been like what these things have meant to you so i really do appreciate you taking the time
1: thank you thank you so much